Well, hello and welcome to The Order of Unmanageable Risks. This is a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I uh, teach sociology at University College London. And my name is Max Haven. I am Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University and co-director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. Uh, on this podcast, we talk to specialists in a whole variety of fields about the links between capitalism and anxiety. We want to move beyond the medicalized definition of an anxiety as something that just affects individuals and also talk about it as something that's affecting society and that's intimately connected to the economy uh, as a whole, specifically the capitalist economy. Uh, this project is uh, part of the Common Anxieties Research Project, which you can uh, discover more about at anxious.community. Uh, and it's supported by the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University College London and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. So let me introduce our first guest today, uh, James Breibel. Um, so James is a writer and artist working across technologies and disciplines. Their artworks have been commissioned by galleries and institutions and exhibited worldwide and on the internet. Their writing on literature, culture and networks has appeared in magazines and newspapers, including Wired, The Atlantic, New Statesman, The Guardian and The Observer. And New Dark Age, which uh, the, the recent book, uh, which we will be discussing today, uh, about technology, knowledge and the end of the future, no less, uh, was published by Verso in 2018. Uh, last year, James also wrote and presented New Ways of Seeing for BBC Radio 4, and uh, which, which uh, was a, um, uh, a show about the politics of visibility and invisibility um, in our technologically augmented world, uh, something that we will be returning to uh, and discuss today as well, hopefully. Uh, so just let me say a few brief words about how I came to know about James's work. And I have to say I came quite sort of late to, to their work on, uh, and through, that was through the book, through New Dark Age, uh, which I thought it was very pertinent uh, and relevant to the types of concerns and anxieties about the politics of finance capitalism, which is the, the kind of field that Max and I have been working on uh, over the last couple of years, especially the ways in which James talks about opacity, invisibility, uncertainty, um, uh, and, as, as, uh, and how this relates, these qualities relate to uh, my understanding and, and our understanding of uh, the way finance capitalism becomes resilient in spite of all the crisis that is, it has been going through in the last few years. So um, I thought that it was, it, it, I'm particularly excited to, to speak with James because I thought that something that they're doing is articulating those kind of issues in a very clear and powerful way and that goes beyond the usual approaches of technophobia and technophilia, which we see a lot in kind of writing that looks at the role of technology in, in those issues. And, um, and personally, I kind of worked my way back, backwards towards, towards James's essays and artwork as part of the new aesthetic, which was um, a, a big project that, that sparked huge debate in the early 2010s. You know, most of my friends were already kind of 
in the know about this. I came a bit late, uh, but uh, but but essentially, it was it was James's concern about this question of eligibility of new digital technologies and our kind of networked world. Um, and their, their concern about finding new ways of representing those illegibilities and forming, formulating a critique out of those, if, if I'm making justice to, you, to, your, to your work, James. Um, and uh, so I was eager to, to talk to James today because I think, and I'm coming to the end of this, but I think um, their work plays rather playfully with something that at first level seems paradoxical, um, that captures so powerfully our contemporary moment and our predicament in this kind of COVID era right now as well, which is how in our attempts to understand our increasingly complex and uncertain world, we're actually uh, make it even more incomprehensible. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me and happy to discuss them. Even before I do that, I mean, can I just ask with a more sort of personal question um, to do also with the current moment, how do you how does the current state of capitalism make you feel and does it cause any kind of anxiety to you right now uh I, as much as it ever did i mean your your focus on the i know you're the focus of your work on, on this on this podcast is, is around capitalism um and it, it's interesting because you know i've been talking about this book and this work uh, but particularly the way the work is formulated in the book for a couple of years now and it's pretty common that um, the uh, that I'll get asked essentially when I'm talking about what I talk about. People will go, "Aren't you just talking about capitalism?" Um, because there's so much of you know the, the examples that I use in the book and the things that I work with generally are deeply, deeply intertwined with capitalism. Um, but on the other hand, I don't consider myself any kind of expert or scholar of capitalism itself. Um, and actually, it's, it's not really the way that I tend to frame things. Um, but I also, I, 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 I guess I envisage it very much as the kind of overall structuring of a lot of what I'm discussing. But I kind of see the events I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on as things that happen kind of within capitalism, sometimes to support it, sometimes in opposition of it, that, that really, I, I have no personal feeling or of grip or grasp on capitalism, which maybe is something that you're kind of talking about. I don't really know yet in terms of this kind of feelings of anxiety, but you know, capitalism being, you know, the condition, the weather, a, a huge overarching structure that I feel I'm really kind of poking at the edges of. So I, I tend to think of capitalism as something that, that is there, that exists, is happening. And, and sometimes it's very specific, like, um, uh, you know, Sort of points into into my life or, or our lives, um, but uh, but it's not the thing that I'm necessarily directly concerned with. But that might be also a kind of blindness on my part. Well, I, I think, but I think it's it, it really is there is there's, there's something there about these questions of opacity and complexity that you really kind of grapple with in your work, and you know these are very much embedded in in, in this kind of especially the new forms of capitalism. So I think, you know, if anything, it's quite interesting the kind of openings you offer through your work to kind of even a language to speak about those, those complexities, actually. And I think, you know, we, what's interesting is that I, I think we quite need that from, from outside, let's say, you know, traditional political economy type of studies of capitalism. Um, well, I mean, one thing that I found happens, and this has happened sort of multiple times in my own work, and not entirely consciously, it's something that I've sort of realized is happening is that I, I focus on 
you know, particular things, particular frameworks, particular events, particularly technological ones. And because those are not terribly well theorized, um, either because they're very novel, though this is not to discount a huge history of science and technology theory and all this kind of stuff, but you know, the things, apparently, some of the things I talk about have not been spoken of in this way before. And the way that I speak in about them provides, as you say, a certain kind of terminology for understanding wider effects. And in that, I think it's very closely related to what I was just saying about these things being embedded within, but also kind of like holographic fragments of capitalism. If we think of technology as something that is um, uh, often an a kind of unconscious embodiment of certain politics, of, of, of certainly of certain ways of thinking and ways of seeing the world, uh, those ways of thinking, ways of seeing become kind of embodied into technologies. And then if you critique the technologies, you kind of build up a framework that you realize actually opens up a much wider view of what's going on. Mm. Um, and that's kind of how I tend to think about these things that, yes, particularly that I will start, you know, if we're talking about opacity, for a long time, I've, you know, I've spoken about the ways in which technology kind of hides itself away. Um, and that's a result of, of, um, of several factors, but in particular, it's a design thing. Right, so the way most consumer technologies are, uh, are designed today, they're designed to abstract away what's actually happening. That's the working of the thing, the running of the code, but also all of the power relationships uh, and the money <laughs> that's like embedded into these things. And so, you know, it's, and, and when you when you embed that all into like a smartphone, and you can show people the blank black glass of a smartphone and understand literally this as a black box that is deliberately hiding things away that's that's a really powerful way of introducing people to the the notion of kind of black box closed systems mm. that are that are black boxes for multiple reasons because they are technologically complex and there is a difficulty mm. in understanding them but also because of uh, business interest, because of political interest that want to keep them hidden to some extent. Mm. And also to mm. our own general blindness and unwillingness to really investigate the things that we encounter every day. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. And it's actually a great way to, to move to the first quote from, your, from the book that I want to, I'm going to read out loud and, and I'll ask you to, um, to sort of, unpack this a little bit more for us and it, it is precisely a passage that I think makes a similar point to what you just mentioned now with re in, in relation to how technologies and the question of technology and power and, and specifically the, this, through this issue of uh, compounded opacity and, and complexity that new technology and computational technologies in particular sort of bring in. Um, so so he, here's the passage. There is a concrete and causal relationship between the complexity of the systems we encounter every day, the opacity with which most of these systems are constructed or described, and fundamental global issues of inequality, violence, populism, and fundamentalism. I've, I've put this, there's another, and I want to bring also another short uh, passage, which is about computation in particular, because I think, you know, th this is the, this, just to make it clear what we mean by technology, and I think computational, technology is what you really sort of so nicely uh, um, unpack in, in, in your book. So computation, you, you write, is opaque. It takes place inside the machine, behind the screen, 
in remote buildings within, as it were, a cloud. Even when this opacity is penetrated by direct apprehension of code and data, it remains beyond the comprehension of most. The aggregation of complex systems in contemporary networked applications means that no single person ever sees the whole picture. And I guess what I want to sort of ask you, um, taking cue from these passages, is if you could tell us a little bit more about what, I, what we see here, I think, is, um, is this question of the cloud and what is hidden within the cloud and what is visible. So this question of what is presented to us as visible and what remains invisible. And so who is able to see and who is able to not see is a question of power, right? So, and, uh, and this is something that you've, you've discussed a lot in, in your uh, Radio uh, 4 show as well. Um, so I guess I want to probe that a bit more in relation to the current forms of inequality that we, we're faced with and um, how you see, how you see this, this question of technology, visibility and invisibility um, uh, impacting on those or, or on big on today's inequalities. Yeah. So I mean to to, to unpack that that quote a, a little bit. Um, uh, I'm talking about the fact that um, yeah, the, these two two central things, which are complexity and opacity, um, are the two kind of main ways in which contemporary networked computational technologies kind of are present in the world. Uh, they're incredibly complex. As I say, you know, no one has the full picture really of this the kind of interaction of all these different systems. Uh, and partly that's an effect of scale and complexity. It's just impossible to hold all this in an individual head. No human is capable mm -hmm. of it. Um, but there's also a deliberate obscuring of it, which takes place for multiple reasons. Um, if you're talking about like a you know a nation state doing surveillance, there's a there's a you know a state security governmental reason for doing it. Um, there's also like simple business reasons for doing it. Like if you make a thing simpler, more people use it. Like you know, there's not a that's not automatically evil. Let's say though, I would say it has certain terrible outcomes. Um, uh, the combination of those two things um, it produces, I think, these 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 larger issues which which I'm talking about. Um, and again, maybe we can kind of pair them up. When I'm talking about these what I call global issues of inequality and, and, and violence, essentially, I'm talking about the power relationships that are embedded in those different levels of knowledge. Because if some people understand how a thing works and a bunch of other people don't understand how that thing works, the people who understand have more power. And as soon as you have a power inequality, some form of violence always, always results. Hmm. That's just what happens when you have an imbalance in relationships. There's going to be some advantage being taken in some direction. And that violence can be financial, or it can be literal, it can take all kinds of forms. Um, but, but the violence is a, is a product of that inequality, and that inequality starts with uh, an imbalance in knowledge and understanding that allows hmm. one group to have an advantage over the other. And, and black box technologies, whether, I, whether that's deliberately little shiny boxes or just complex, difficult to understand things, really accentuate that inequality. The result that's happening, that's also embedded in there on the other side, I feel very strongly, is, is, is what in that quote I call populism and fundamentalism. Mm. You know, this is really a point from where the book started from, which was to say, like, how come after 50 years of incredibly you know, accelerating technologies of incredible 
um, sophistication and, you know, the dream of technology that it improves lives. How do we find ourselves in the present time looking at a global political landscape that's comprised of so much violence, uh, fundamentalism, um, uh, nationalism, these kind of concerns which really should be the opposite of what we should be seeing if everything we thought about these technologies was true. And there's, there's several things going on there, but to relate it to the opacity, I, th I think the really important thing is to, is to understand that, you know, fundamentally we believe in the ability of technology to do certain things and to produce certain equalities. And so when it doesn't, that really sets up a huge cognitive dissonance for us. Mm. We believe we should understand the world, that we have these technologies for control of the world. And so either they're not working or some shadowy power or some power we can actually point at is pulling mm. the leads, right? And we feel the opposite of empowered by these technologies. These technologies continually produce a deep and profound sense of, of disempowerment, which we're not always conscious of. And this is where the kind of theorizing comes in, because people don't necessarily go around feeling or aware that they're feeling disempowered all the time. Hmm. But if you can't switch on the news and see people spouting the most insane conspiracy theories without thinking that there is an attempt here to, an, to, to say that we can assert a narrative over things that are outside of our control. And for me, that's deeply related to the way technology promises power and then continually kind of removes it and hides it away and actually makes it harder for us to really understand the way the world around us is working. James, can, can I ask you, because you mentioned conspiracy, and I think that's, that's, a really, uh, that's something that I, I found really fascinating in, in the way uh, it was one of those um, aspects of uh, one of the observations that you make in the book that I thought are really interesting in terms of how some of our the political responses uh, to this environment, this kind of technological environment that, uh, well, reality that we, we are experiencing, some of those responses that we see in contemporary populist uh, movements, like, you know, the kind of regressive, nativist, neo-fascist populist movements, um, seem to be doing maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is something I want to ask you, seem to be doing something maybe quite effectively in the way they understand the, how to navigate that kind of cloud um, and the way they provide, the kind of narratives they provide uh, to, for people to navigate those kind of complexities. And I kind of, if you don't mind, I want to read another passage that speaks to that issue and, and ask you to talk to us a little bit more um, about it. So you write, faced with the rolling tide of information, we attempt to gain some kind of control over the world by telling stories about it. We, we attempt to master it through narratives. These narratives are inherently simplifications because no one story can account for everything that is happening. The world is too complex for simple stories. Instead of accepting this, the stories become even more baroque and bifurcated, even more convoluted and open-ended. Thus, paranoia in the age of network excess produces a feedback loop. The failure to comprehend a complex world leads to the demand for more and more information, which only further clouds our understanding, revealing more and more complexity that must be accounted for by even more Byzantine theories of the world. More information produces more, not more clarity, but more confusion. And 
I, I, this for me, to me, this makes me think a lot about, and you talk in the book also about uh, Twitter bots and the kind of Brexit conspiracy theories and, and you know, the kind of, um, those kind of regressive narratives that are produced in that chaotic environment. Um, and it makes me think of, you know, Dominic Cummings and, you know, his, his kind of references to uh, misfits and, and chaotic management and all the Surkov kind of dogma in Putin's kind of environment of dealing with that chaos. So I wondered in the current landscape, you know, and, and maybe the kind of post-COVID landscape as well, like what this, um, what these type of uncertainties and complexities, what, what the implications for... You know, are, are these populists doing something better in navigating that environment? I mean, is, this, is, there, any, is there anything there that you think? Well, what, I mean, before we get into the, the political siding of it, which is yeah, absolutely yeah. crucial, and like, it's really important to emphasize that the, I don't think conspiracy itself, as a, as a term for this kind of process of either kind of making Baroque or making simple stories, as an attempt to understand the world is itself rooted in one or the other politics. That to me is like a deep, deep human need to, like, it's, it's, it's the disease of having a forebrain that we, we need to make sense of the world. Um, hmm. And so we construct stories uh, and we construct stories that make sense to us, that allow us to feel we have some kind of agency over our lives um, and, and at the most extreme force control over those lives, which of course is completely unattainable. Um, uh, and that's just a problem we have. Um, and, and, and on the other hand, we, we need stories that also give us a sense of you know, not just control and agency, but importance, uh, that we're right, um, that, that we are seen uh, in a modern parlance, or that we, we, you know, we, are, we are present in this as, our, as ourselves and as individuals. Um, and that's an ongoing process that we're all doing all the time. Um, where I think, particularly, I think we see a political difference is that um, this is that's fairly well theorized? We understand that. Um, what happens then is when it's when there's a different incentive at play, and um, my feeling would be that the the um, the right has always been more concerned with uh, and aware of the possibilities of taking and holding power. Than the left, which wants to democratize and open up power and 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 uh, and kind of explain this to everyone. So I think this stuff is when you when you mention someone like Sirkov or Cummings, um, we're talking about people who really do understand this, but you know they then they're not trying to make it better. Right? They're not trying to improve the situation. They're trying to use that understand understanding to take and hold power. So there's there's two main processes here at work. One of which is like an understanding of this situation and its complexity and what it's doing. And the other thing is who's better at like weaponizing that understanding in order to take and hold political power. Um, and, and, and yes, it would definitely appear that um, I, I, not even right and left are really the best terminologies for this, but certainly uh, what I would call more fundamentalist or, or nativist politics are very, very, very good at weaponizing this because they are the simplest and oldest stories there are. Like here is a dogma, here is a race, like here is a line you can walk down that's just clear, even though it's of course never clear, um, and, and, and that allows you to feel that you are, you are correct, you are holding the correct position, and that there is a, a clear division in the world that you can abide by. And, and so those, 
that way of seeing the world is, is much more amenable to manipulation by people who, who, who have a, a kind of sophisticated understanding of the, of the kind of complexity and confusions that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I call it a kind of concrete and causal reaction. Like I think mm -hmm. it's solid and I think it's a result of, um, in part, of, of the increased apparent complexity of the world. You know, and this is and this is again why, why technology is worth emphasizing because I always try and remember to say the apparent complexity of the world. But the world is complex. The world is not mm. made complex by our technologies, but it mm. appears complex because of the way we receive it and, and interact with it. Mm. And, and and that's why I, you know I don't have a lot of truck with the idea, of, as I say, of technology making the world itself more complex. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I, I will squarely put the blame on the way in which we've designed, built, and thought about technologies for the mm. last forever for doing that. Mm. James, uh, to jump in, I, I wanted to ask you about then the role of the critic, the role of the critical cultural producer, the role of activists in the spheres of media and ideas. Um, what, in, in the way that you framed it, which I think is really illuminating and very useful, um, it strikes me that a book like yours and a lot of the work that, that many are trying to do to in some way illuminate um, these, these dynamics is not then just about sharing the correct information. It's actually about generating some kind of different form of radical, let's say, storytelling or at least transformative storytelling that can give us different resources to make sense of the world together. Uh, is, is, would you agree with that? Do you think that's an, a fair representation of it? I mean, yes, I do broadly, but I also think it's, it's eternally insufficient on another level. Um, um, I, think, I think it is the work that needs to be done. Um, and, and I think that work can take many forms. I don't think it take, it, it doesn't take, it can't and mustn't take the form of telling people that there is a better way of thinking about this stuff, that they're just wrong or like this is, this is the, you know, um, uh, bringing a fact checker to a knife fight type deal, like it, it, like the insistence on on fact checking and saying this narrative is wrong, this narrative is right, that's not helpful. Um, not least because it continues to remove agency from the people who are all they're trying to do is find agency within these situations. And so the only way to, like at the higher scale, shift this situation is to genuinely empower people. <laughs> ultimately, like, and that is, is ultimately a political project and, and fundamentally an educational project. Um, because unless you have personally a, an agency within the systems you are operating in, then being told that the story is different to the one you think it is, is just a battle of stories. It makes no fundamental difference. And, and your actual agency and your perception of your agency are also deeply intertwined. Because people who have perceptions of their own agency actually have agency. Like that's the that's the that's the primary thing here. And this is why, for example, I, I use technology as an example a lot in um, in teaching, which I, I don't do a lot of, but I really think is probably the most important thing. Um, I you know I talk a lot about teaching technology as a way of understanding the world. Just as earlier I spoke about theorizing technology as a way of theorizing other things. My personal experience is also that. To some extent, I feel I have a slightly better grasp on the world, as good as any of us do, because I know how computers work right? on, on certain other levels. And, and I, have a, I have a certain understanding of types of complexity and types of engineering and, you know, these 
knowledges of the domains in which we all live that gives me a feeling of agency, which in turn gives me actual agency. And that doesn't mean that I will fix the world by fixing computers. Um, but it does mean that I won't, I hope I'm maybe slightly less um, terrified of the world, essentially, um, which is the main inhibitor to people, uh, you know, having agency, having confidence, having critical abilities to make their own decisions about which stories affect and so on and so forth. This actually, again, links to the last, the last part of the, that I wanted to, um, the, last, the last sort of question I had for, for you and, and um, the last short part of, from the book that I want to read you. Um, and it's actually, it makes me think because you're talking now about education. And so there's the question of knowledge. Um, and you talk again in the book about, uh, I think, do you, I, I'm not, I can't remember whether you, you, you speak about Ramsfeld himself, but you talk about the unknown unknowns, I think, right? And this question of what we don't know uh, and how we deal with that, uh, uh, with those unknown unknowns. And, and you speak, because you speak about the cloud, the cloud ultimately, and the darkness of the cloud. And I think you talk about gray zones. So, uh, so there is on the one hand this education and the need to know and, and the, the, this kind of quest for the, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, sorry, we're on chat, so, but you can see that I'm waving kind of agitatedly yeah, at this, yeah, yeah. this equation of education and knowledge, mm. uh, which, is, which, is, which is fundamentally flawed. That, that when I speak about education, I am not speaking about knowledge. I am not speaking about knowing. I am not speaking about teaching as like informing people so that mm. they know things. Mm. I'm, 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 I'm talking about teaching people so that they can do things. Hmm. Education is practice, not knowledge imparting. Hmm. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a muscular, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a skill. It's, it's, a, it's a process of learning that enables further learning. Hmm. Because hmm. The, what I'm, the, the unknown unknowns, God, I hate the phrase, um, <laughs> is not a domain to be conquered, right? This is, hmm. this is, this is, this is, um, hmm. This is the fundamental thing. But when I speak of, of darkness and uncertainty, I do mm. not speak of them as things to be conquered, as things mm. to be illuminated, to be dominated, um, to be kind of brought into the light. Um, because I don't believe that any, everything can be known. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the fundamental mm. um, kind of epistemological battle of our time is, is, is mm. this is this belief that you know if we only gather enough data, if we surveil everything, if we if we do all this, that we'll 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 we'll, we'll be able to contain the world into a knowable form and therefore have total power over it. That's the fundamental misunderstanding. And so what that informs is my view that uh, what we that, that teaching and education is not about mm. imparting knowledge. Right? Mm. It's, it's imparting agency. It's giving people the, um, uh, the confidence and the skills and the frameworks and the techniques and the processes to make their own knowledges, because knowledge is plural uh, and, and, it's, and it's, it's specific to events and occurrences and phenomena, and it differs mm. in time and it differs according to ability and background and everything else. Um, and, and, and there's, there's no such thing as like universally applicable knowledge. Mm. Uh, it needs to be constantly regenerated. Um, and it needs to be, you know, and, and in order to share power and all that kind of stuff, it needs to be generated by as many people as possible. So anytime I'm talking, you know, 
about yeah education and teaching it has it has nothing to do with building knowledge and everything to do with building a kind of critical muscle memory that can then be applied to novel situations just to kind of bring it to to into some sort of conclusion if we can really uh, just to stay a little bit to linger a bit more in that kind of dark space um, where this kind of political muscle might be able, might be able to flex that and and uh, <laughs> um, so you let me let me read this quote I think it's a beautiful uh, passage um, and and then I'll, I'll ask you for some sort of concluding thoughts on that on that following on from that so you write we have been conditioned to think of the darkness as a place of danger even even of death but the darkness can also be a place of freedom and possibility a place of equality for many what is discussed here will be obvious because they have always lived in the in this darkness that seems to be so seems so threatening to the privileged we have much to learn about unknowing uncertainty can be uncertainty can be productive even sublime um, and you talk just that I'm going to bring another very short one here where you say cloudy thinking the embrace of unknowing might allow us to revert from computational thinking and uh, it is what the network itself urges upon us so um, yeah I mean because I mean we are in, in many ways I mean increasingly you know this uh, the, the, the darkness is increasingly kind of uh, um, something that is understood by more and more of us, I think, in the current kind of moment. So, yeah, I just wondered if you had any, if you wanted to share with us your kind of current thoughts about these, the, these conclusions, this is part of your conclusions from the book. I, I have to say, I, I don't think there's much more to say about that than mm. what I've said. Um, uh, you know, um, thank you for reading the quote. I, I, I don't particularly have much to add to that sentiment. Mm. Um, I mean, it very much comes from a perspective of, of being constantly aware that I speak from a place of immense privilege. And, and, and whenever any of us, particularly in the West, start talking about like, oh, you know, there's this, this kind of, you know, existential risks of uncertainty, um, there, there's, a, there's a fairly strong case to be made that we've, you know, just noticed what life is like for the other 99% of humanity. And so when I when I say that like other people have always lived in the dark, it's to acknowledge that, that you know there's a there's very different experiences of this. Um, that said, we you know most can only speak from one's own experience, um, and and I also I believe in the as I say that quite simply in, in the darkness as a base of freedom, um, you know in in whatever form that darkness may take for. for, for for, for me or for you or for anyone else, um, that the, the ability to, to, to explore for oneself without fear of, of, of oversight of surveillance and all these kind of things is, is absolutely critical um, to the self. And, and that's a, you know, this is a, this is a problem of contemporary life that we, we lack a, a certain kinds of freedom. And it's something that the, the political forces on both sides are struggling with in terms of whether that's that's social control or whether it's kind of forms of identity politics, which is not to critique identity politics, it's to say that that is an issue it has in terms of the ability to explore and think clearly. Um, but also that it's sublime, that I really, really mean this, that, that for me, uncertainty is the most beautiful thing. You know, you talk to, you talk to like quantum physicists and get them to talk about how little they understand and how incredibly amazing that is that the world remains this kind of open field of play and possibility. Um, 
like I, I don't want to live in this like brightly lit room where everything is illuminated and clear and immobile and dead. Um, the darkness is the place where all forms of possibility, social and political, like remain in existence and, and imminent. Um, and the idea that, that we would deliberately kind of try and coalesce them into something that we know explicitly is, is just not how I want to live. Um, so I, yeah, it, it took a long time to kind of realize that for myself in writing about this darkness that, that actually I, I constantly use throughout the book in particular, the figure of darkness is something bad, but I don't really mean that it's bad. It's a condition that most of the badness terrible way of phrasing it, but the badness of the world emerges from our attempt to kind of conquer the darkness, really, mm -hmm. um, rather than learning about how to live with it. Uh, and, and the project, therefore, is how to, how to live fully and equitably and with justice in the presence of darkness, rather than in denial of it. Thanks so much for, for joining us in this first podcast. I really want to thank James for coming on, on the show. Uh, for this episode and uh, to say that if you're interested in the work you can find out more on the website and the links in the show notes and our uh, own website uh, at the address that Max gave earlier that is www.anxious.community Thanks so much for having me, it's been a pleasure Thanks so much Well that was a really illuminating conversation with, with uh, James I wanted to pick up uh, just briefly on the final thing that he was speaking about, which is uh, coming to a kind of uh, peace or um, some sort of understanding with dealing with what I think we've been talking about as uncertainty uh, and what he frames as the darkness. Uh, and I feel like for us, th this really speaks to, on a couple of levels, to the question of anxiety, because on, on to a very real extent, the experience of anxiety is an incapacity to cope with the uncertainty and it can lead to a kind of frantic and let's say phobic or fearful uh, desire for a kind of certainty i think um but at the same time one wouldn't want to readily say that because it would imply then that anxiety is just the responsibility of the individual to you know make sense of the chaos of their lives and of course that's that's part of the human condition but i also think that one of the things i appreciated james pointing towards was the role of education and the fact that this is a collective endeavor that we have to collectively and cooperatively make sense of the uncertainty the darkness the chaos that is our reality regardless of if that reality is suffused as ours is with complex technologies or simply the chaos and confusion of human existence, uh, uh, you know, and the particularities of our, our species. Yeah, and, I, and I, I agree. I think that there was a lot about, a lot in that, in James's approach to the darkness that we spoke about in the end. Um, something about this call for resisting the urge to illuminate at all costs that darkness that I think is a very, uh, it, it, it's very interesting uh, for the way in which we understand uh, people's every, everyday navigations of darkness and, and those navigations that cause them a lot of anxiety and, and, and a lot of um, emotional uh, upheaval. Um, and, you know, it's a scary place. And um, so I think, you know, it's particularly important in the current moment that is 
that where, where we have um you know where more that more so than uh in any in any other time this this question of you know this uncertainty and, and impossibility to offer concrete solutions to, to to problems um is really felt by by so many people uh i think there's something there there's a seed there's a very interesting seed in james's thinking i think about how we might want to approach uh, ways forward and as you said i think these these should be collective um, and they should be um, just staying with what that darkness and what that um, uncertainty might, able, might be able to, to offer us. And one of the things that it might be able to offer us is uh, changing the terms of the debate, the, the changing the language, the, thi the, the, the constraints of our thinking for for, off, for thinking about what solutions might be to. So there is something about how we can become more politically radical uh, as well in that dark space. Uh, and yes, that, that's what I would keep from, from, from James's conclusions, I think. Mm -hmm. They remind me quite a bit of some of the stuff we've been talking about in terms of the work of Cornelius Castoriadis and his sort of later work thinking through chaos. Uh, yeah. And generally the notion that the radical imagination emerges from the experience of difference from the experience of, of dwelling with and considering yeah. darkness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it, it is. And what Castoriadis does, and you know, he has this last book that he published, which he calls A Window Onto Chaos. And, and it's all about, in, in many ways, uh, um, th there is something about that in James's thinking, you know, like how do we find ways to represent that chaos? That, that as an endeavor is a, is a really important one. And of course, for Castoriadis, it's about how we are politically autonomous, how, how those representations of chaos can be our own ways of representing and not borrowed by the system. Um, so yeah, lo lo lots of food for thought, uh, I think. Well, thanks again to our uh, listeners and viewers for joining us. Uh, you can find out more about our project, uh, the Common Anxieties Project at anxious.community. That's http colon slash slash anxious.community. Uh, this is a production of the Common Anxieties Research Project and it's supported by the Institute for Advanced Studies at University College London and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.